Father in heaven, we thank you for our Bibles. We thank you that we can gather freely in this place and open your word together. Uh, We remember our brothers and sisters in Christ all over the world who don't have that same luxury. We pray that on this Lord's Day you would be with them uh, as they turn to your word, even in secret and in hiding. Father, we pray for our time in your word, that it would be profitable to our souls for all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for proof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And so we ask that you would please be with us now. We ask this all in Christ's name, for his sake and his glory. Amen. If you would please take out your Bibles and turn to Second Samuel chapter 5. Lord willing, our goal this morning is to finish uh, the rest of the chapter. You'll remember last week we left off at verse 5. And and the first five verses of uh, 2 Samuel chapter 5 are are kind of a climactic point in the books of Samuel. David is finally king over all Israel. And from the initial promise, right, all the way back in 1 Samuel chapter 16, we've uh, followed David through his ups and downs as he's patiently waited for this moment. Uh, sure, sometimes he did uh, foolish things, uh, sometimes he did sinful things, but for the most part, we've seen a man after God's own heart who's been content to wait for the fulfillment of God's promise to him. And that day finally comes to fruition when in 2 Samuel chapter 4, right, Ishbosheth, the last remaining son of Saul, he's assassinated. And so the house of Saul is now effectively finished. And that leads the other tribes now to come to David. You'll remember that David's own tribe of Judah came to him earlier. Well, now all the tribes come under David's rule. And so now the entire nation is united under God's anointed king, right? This is a huge day in the history of Israel. And look at how the author emphasizes the totality of David's rule over Israel in these verses. Verse 1, all the tribes of Israel came to David. Verse 3, all the elders of Israel came to the king. Second half of verse 5, at Jerusalem he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. And that brings us now to verse 6 and the rest of chapter 5. Now, now we've been following David's rise to the throne for so long, like his becoming king for what feels like forever. But now he is king. And that means he's going to shift gears. He's going to start doing the things that kings do. He's got to administer a kingdom. He's got to lead his people. He's got to deal with both allies and enemies. And so for the rest of this chapter, we're going to see King David beginning his newly established kingship by taking Jerusalem from the Jebusites and going to war against the Philistines. So this morning, we're just going to track this chapter in a a pretty straightforward way. Uh, I've got no alliteration for you, uh, no rhyming, uh, nothing clever at all. all Just point number one, the Jebusites, and point number two, the Philistines. That's all I got. So point number one, the Jebusites. 
Look along in your Bibles. I'm reading from verse 6. The king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land. I'm going to stop right there, uh, lest we kind of breeze past these important details, uh, because we need a little bit of context. Why is David even interested in Jerusalem? Like, why is he picking this fight against the Jebusites? Look back real quick at verse 5. At Hebron, David reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And at Jerusalem, he reigned over Israel and Judah 33 years. Now, most 21st century Bible readers, I assume, would read verse 5 and would say, Now, Jerusalem I know, but what's Hebron? But actually, if you're reading the Bible from the beginning, it's actually the other way around. Uh, Because Hebron is the more significant city. It's the better-known city up to this point. It's where Abraham and the patriarchs are buried. Uh, It's where David has reigned for seven and a half years over Judah. Jerusalem, up to this point in the Bible, Jerusalem's like a footnote. It's, It's an obscure city that really only comes up in these lists of areas that the Israelites tried to conquer when they first moved into the Promised Land. Jerusalem, at least up to this point in biblical history, is nothing special at all. So why would David want to fight the Jebusites for Jerusalem? And why would David ultimately make Jerusalem his capital? During the 1780s, Uh, right after the Revolutionary War. Uh, The U.S. government's getting established, and one of the big issues was where they were going to put the nation's capital. And did you know, a little New York City trivia for you all, uh, New York City was actually the nation's capital from 1785 to 1790, uh, and so George Washington's first inauguration, uh, 1789, it actually happened in the city of New York. After that, they uh, temporarily moved the capital to uh, Philadelphia. Uh, Why anybody would want to live in Philly is beyond me. Uh, But the states could not agree on on where they were going to put the capital because the southern states, well, they didn't want the capital so far up north. And the northern states, they didn't want to bring the capital down south. And the history buffs are going to get on me because there's more to it than this. But basically... Compromise of 1790, basically what happens is in exchange for the federal government taking on the debts of the northern states, the capital was placed further south, right, on an area on the Potomac, uh, now known as Washington, D.C. And that kind of worked for everybody as as a good compromise because the northern states, uh, they got their debt assumed, uh, and Washington, D.C. really isn't that far south, and they were happy. And the southern states, well, they get the capital to move all the way down from New York, Philly, all the way down to D.C. And so they were happy. Washington, D.C., its kind of central location on the eastern seaboard was basically a compromise between the northern and southern states. Well, that at least in part is why David chose Jerusalem. Jerusalem to be his capital. Because David's got a little bit of a dilemma on his hands as the 12 tribes come under his rule, right? Because you can kind of picture a map of the promised land in your head, or if you've got a map in the back of your Bibles, that's probably more helpful. If this is the promised land, then this very, very southern part, that's Judah. And so if David continues to rule from Hebron, Hebron's his capital city, well, Hebron's well-situated within the borders of Judah all the way down here in the south. Uh, the other 11 tribes would naturally feel slighted. 
might be viewed as, well, you know, Judah, that's where the kingdom's really at because, well, that's David's own tribe and he's just going to rule from there and the rest of us don't really matter. Like you've got, like, this is the kingdom and this is not really part of the kingdom. I'd imagine that people from Alaska or Hawaii would feel that way. As long as David kept the capital in Hebron, the kingdom would never feel truly united. There would always be this division between Judah and everybody else. But at the same time, if he moves the capital too far north, like let's say by like the Sea of Galilee or something like that, well then the people of Judah would feel betrayed. We were with you from the start, David. And now that you're king over the whole nation, now you're just going to leave us? You're going to completely forget about us? And so David comes up with a compromise of sorts. Right? The Washington, D.C. of 1000 B.C. Israel, he comes up with Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem was technically within the borders of Benjamin, not Judah. And so the people of Benjamin, right, any remaining sympathizers of the house of Saul, well, they would have been happy with that. And the other ten tribes, right, they would have been happy that David moved the capital from Hebron further north to Jerusalem, right, out of the tribe of Judah into a more central location. And even the people of Judah, they would have been okay with it because uh, Jerusalem is basically next to the border of Judah and Benjamin, right? It's technically in Benjamin, but it's very close to Judah. And, and so they would have been happy as well. Uh, Jerusalem is this brilliant political compromise by David to really bring the whole kingdom united under his rule. But that only half answers the question, right? Because he could have really picked any city in that area, in that region. Like, why Jerusalem specifically? Well, Jerusalem was a strategic city because it was so well protected. It lies uh, highly elevated uh, over the, the plains around it. Basically, it sits on top of, like, this very steep hill. Uh, you always want to be on the higher elevation in any battle, right? You've heard the term of fighting an uphill battle. Well, to fight against Jerusalem was literally uh, an uphill battle. And so if David could establish his capital there, well, he could have the most well-fortified capital in the region. But the problem with establishing a well-fortified city as your capital is first you've got to take that well-fortified city from whoever's currently living there, and the Jebusites were already living there. But now don't picture the Jebusites it's like this, you know, like peaceful and, and godly group of like Cub Scouts who are about to get unfairly displaced by David and the Israelites. The Jebusites were wicked Canaanites. As a matter of fact, up to this point in the Bible, like if you search for Jebusites, you pretty much only find them in the lists of the Canaanite peoples, right? All the Ites, the Hittites, and the Amorites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. For some reason, they always come last. Right? These are the people that God told Israel to devote to complete destruction because if you don't, you're going to end up serving their gods. You're going to end up following them in pagan idolatry. And so the Jebusites were wicked, evil idol worshipers who the Israelites were commanded to expel from the land. And so you might ask, well, if that's the case, and the Israelites already conquered the promised land under Joshua, like what are these folks still doing there? Well, the answer is in Judges chapter 1. Uh, we find out that even though the Israelites successfully capture the city, and they even set it on fire at one point, 
they weren't able to completely drive out the Jebusites. Judges 121, the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. So all the way up to David's day, the Jebusites had continued to live in Jerusalem. It's not that he's king. David's got to do something about this. David's got to do something about these Jebusites for two reasons. Right? One, like we said, he wanted to take Jerusalem as his capital, uh, both because it would have been a good compromise for all the tribes and because it would be uh, such a good city for defensive purposes. But two, also because God's promise and God's command to Israel to drive out the Jebusites, right, promise as early as chapter 15 of Genesis to Abraham, that promise and that command was still unfulfilled and was still unfinished. David needed to complete what they could not do in Joshua's day, right, to drive out the Jebusites from Jerusalem and rightly claim it for Israel as a part of the promised land. So now with all that context in mind, we haven't even done one verse yet, right? Let's look at verse 6. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, you will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking, David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. And David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. Therefore it is said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from the millow inward. And David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. And Jerusalem was thought to be so undefeatable. Like Lamentations 4.12, it's, it's not talking about this. It's talking about uh, how surprising it was when the Babylonians took Jerusalem many centuries later. Lamentations 4.12, it says, The kings of the earth did not believe, nor any of the inhabitants of the world, that foe or enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. Like nobody ever thought that you could successfully attack Jerusalem for all the reasons that we've already mentioned. So when David and his men show up, the Jebusites, they're not worried at all. They just take the opportunity to talk some trash. You will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off. As in, even if like, the only people here were the blind and the lame, like they could defend the city from you. Right? That's how safe we are in here. The modern equivalent might be to say, like, this fortress is so strong, my grandmother could defend it. Now, trash talking is great, but if you're going to talk trash, right, you've got to be able to back it up. And they can't. Right, verse 7, it kind of takes the suspense out of it. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. Now, how they did it remains a bit of a mystery. Verse 8, it's a verse that translators have struggled with mightily. The most likely scenario, which is what the ESV and most modern translations seem to adopt, is that David and his men climbed up some kind of water shaft. See, one of the things that made Jerusalem such a, uh, an invulnerable city 
is that it was located right next to this water source, uh, the Gaihan Spring. And there's this like network of underground tunnels that would start inside the city walls that you could kind of follow under the wall. And eventually it would lead to this steep 50-foot drop. And at the bottom of that drop was water from the spring. And then that's important because if your city is under siege, uh, like food and water from the outside is being cut off by your enemies, well, you could still go underground through this tunnel, come to the edge of this 50-foot drop, and just kind of drop your bucket and get water even in times of siege. A lot of that was speculation uh, until the 1860s uh, when uh, this guy, Sir Charles Warren, discovered that 50-foot shaft under the city of Jerusalem. And so to this day, it's called Warren's Shaft. And so it's very possible that David and his guys climbed up Warren's Shaft to get into Jerusalem. But whatever the means were, they get in, they attack... Right? They attack the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. And that's just referring to the Jebusites, kind of uh, flipping their own trash talk back on their heads. And they take the stronghold of Zion in Jerusalem. Point number one, the Jebusites. Now once David takes his city, his new capital city, you'll see in the next couple of verses that uh, King Hiram of Tyre, maybe he's desirous to uh, become allies with the new king of Israel. He's desirous to build this relationship with King David. Well, he sends over some cedar trees. He sends over some carpenters. He sends over some stonemasons. And they help David to build his palace in the city of Jerusalem. Look at verse 12. David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel And that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. And so picture this. You can imagine David. He's sitting in his newly built palace in the city of Jerusalem. The securest capital city that you could imagine. From where he could rule all 12 tribes. And as he kind of thinks back and as he kind of reminisces over everything that's happened over the last 20 years or so. Everything from Samuel anointing him to uh, defeating Goliath to running away from Saul to living as a refugee to hiding in caves, right? All of that, as he thinks through all of that and everything that he's been through that's brought him to this point, now he's sitting on his throne. Well, he knew. He knew. Like there was no doubt about it in his mind that the Lord had done it all. That the Lord had established him king over Israel, verse 12. That God, according to his sovereign plan, worked out every single detail perfectly according to his will that David might now sit on his throne. But that's not all that David knew. Look again at verse 12. Look at the second half. David also knew that God had had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. Think about that. Lest David be tempted to think that this was about him. I am the great king of Israel. That this was about his own glory. That this was about his own rise to power and fame. No, David knew that God did this for the sake of his people. For the sake of his glory. For the sake of his name. What an important thing that would be for David to remember for the rest of his life. Like, you've got to know this, David. 
everything that you're going to do as king, everything that you're going to do for Israel, it's not for your sake. It's not for your reputation. It's not for your legacy or for your glory. It's for the sake of God's people and God's name and God's glory. Brothers and sisters, we need to know this also. The things that we do for God's kingdom, the the things that God graciously allows us to do for his church, the various ministries that we're involved in, whether it's preaching and teaching or singing and praying or sound and, and projection, childcare, visitation, planning, fixing, giving, whatever it might be, it's ultimately not about us, about our glory and our reputation and our legacy. It's for God's people and God's glory. In our sinful natures, like we're so self-focused and we're so selfish that the temptation is like almost inevitable to put ourselves in the spotlight, to, to, to make what we do about ourselves, to be so concerned about how we appear in the eyes of other people, to cherish our reputations and our renown, to get upset when our ministries are not properly appreciated, to get bothered when things don't go exactly as we've planned. That's why we need to know, like David knew. Likewise, we need to know why God does what he does through us. Why God chooses to use us as his instruments. It's for the sake of his people and for the sake of his glory. God exalts his kingdom for the sake of his people. Brothers and sisters, we must remember that. Point number one, the Jebusites. Point number two, let's look at the Philistines. You say, well, he just kind of skipped over verses 13 to 16 there. I did. Uh, It's a list of David's sons that were born in Jerusalem. We saw a similar list of sons that were born in Hebron in chapter 2 already. And so I don't have too much more to say uh, than I did there. Uh, One thing you should note, of the 11 11 names that are listed here, uh, only two are really biblically significant. Uh, Solomon, of course, is very important. Uh, And then the other name that you should kind of keep your eye on is Nathan, uh, because that is a name that appears in the genealogy of Christ in Luke chapter 3. But for now, let's look at the Philistines, point number 2. Look at verse 17. When the Philistines heard... That David had been anointed king over Israel. All the Philistines went up to search for David. But David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. I want to think about everything that's happened in the last few chapters. Not from David's perspective, but let's think about this from the Philistines' perspective. Because back in 1 Samuel chapter 27, David actually comes to live amongst them. Uh, Like he's fleeing from Saul. And he thinks that living with the Philistines will be safer than living in Israel. And so you'll remember for 16 months, David and his men live in Ziklag. And it's during that time that he really endears himself to Achish, uh, one of the Philistine kings, uh, by pretending to raid the Israelites. And Achish loves him so much that he actually wants to take David into battle with the Philistines, like on the Philistine side against the Israelites, 
but then you'll remember the other commanders send him home. Uh, But it's in that battle, uh, as the rest of the Philistines go to fight against the Israelites, that the Philistines kill King Saul and three of his sons, and they scatter the rest of the Israelite army into retreat. So you're the Philistines. You've just had this decisive victory over Israel. But now you hear that Saul's last remaining son, Ishbosheth, well, he's been crowned by General Abner uh, on the east side of the Jordan. You kind of hear rumblings about what's going on there. And at the same time, you hear that David has gone to Hebron uh, to set up what appears in your eyes to be a rival kingdom to Ishbosheth's. And so from the Philistine perspective, like as the Philistines think about all of this, well, the way they're probably thinking about it is Ishbosheth, he's our enemy, and Ishbosheth is David's enemy. And so the enemy of my enemy is my friend. David's really kind of on our side. He's also against Ishbosheth. He's also against the house of Saul. But all of that changes. Verse 17, when the Philistines hear that David has been anointed now over all Israel. Like he's officially replaced the house of Saul. The house of Saul is no more. And now he's trying to consolidate power among the tribes. And so in the Philistines' eyes, David goes from being like this uh, neutral third party slash kind of my ally because we have the same common enemy to now being a threat and an enemy himself. Verse 18, the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. Don't miss the significance of that. That's huge. Because the last time the Israelites fought the Philistines, Saul was king over Israel. And before that battle, King Saul also inquired of the Lord. You remember that? But what happened? 1 Samuel 28, 6. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Saul inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him. Later in the chapter, Samuel tells us exactly why. It's because you did not obey the voice of the Lord. But it goes both ways, right? God didn't answer Saul because of Saul's disobedience. But Saul, in his disobedience, didn't really seek answers from God. He just as quickly goes to a medium for answers. And in the same way, it goes both ways for David. God answers David because David is a man after God's own heart. But David, as a man after God's own heart, truly seeks answers from God. So David probably calls in Abiathar, the high priest. He calls in the the Urim and the Thummim and the the Ephod and all that kind of fun stuff. And he seeks God's will on what to do. And God tells him that not only should he go up, uh, that is, not only should he meet the Philistines in battle, but he also tells him the outcome. I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. It's always reassuring to know that you're going to win before the game even starts. Basically, it's the exact opposite of watching a Mets game. Verse 20. David came to Baal Perazim, and David defeated him there. And he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. 
Therefore, the name of that place is called Baal Perazim. And the Philistines left their idols there, and David and his men carried them away. Okay, just like with the Jebusite story from the beginning of the chapter, like the author's kind of light on the details, like nothing about battle formations, uh, who did what, uh, strategies, implementations. It just says David defeated them there. Now, the one thing that we know is that God apparently does something so powerful and, and so amazing uh, that it leaves an impression in David's mind that the Lord broke through the Philistines like a flood. Y'all remember about a month ago now when uh, Hurricane Ida swept through? Uh, and you're kind of watching the news and, and you're seeing just these videos of, of these cars, these big cars just getting washed away like, 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 a, like a bath toy. Or videos of like walls just crumbling in, breaking from an onrush of water, right? We're reminded once again of how powerful floodwaters can be. That's the imagery that David's using here. It's, it's a breaking flood. It's God smashing through the Philistine defense. The victory is so thorough. It's such a dominating victory that the Philistines, look at verse 21, they left their idols behind. Boy, that's one of those small little details that we can so quickly gloss over if we're not careful. Just think about that. They left their idols behind. The idols that they love so much that they bow down to and worship. They just leave them behind. It's like you can claim to place your trust in these things all you want, but at the end of the day, when you're running for your life, Philistines, it's not just that these idols are of no help. It's that they're dead weight. And so you just kind of throw them overboard, like useless cargo in a storm. It's like Isaiah says about idols. Isaiah 46.1 their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. Well, that's exactly how the Philistines saw their great Dagons and Ashtoreths in the heat of the battle. And so you've got to love that contrast. On one hand, you've got the God of the universe who just smashes and crashes through the Philistines like a breaking flood. And on the other hand, you've got these perilous gods that are just extra weight that need to be discarded so that you can run away. That's a stunning reversal of what's happened earlier in these books. You remember the Battle of Gilboa from a couple of weeks ago? How after their victory, the Philistines send messengers throughout their lands to carry the good news to the house of their idols. Well, those idols... Uh, that the Philistines were so eager to give the glory to after that battle, well, now they are lying, powerless, and discarded, and deserted, and abandoned on the battlefield. And if we go back even further than that, all the way back to the beginning of the book of 1 Samuel, you remember the battle of Aphek? Remember how the Philistines took the Ark of the Covenant in that battle? Well, here, it's Israel who takes the Philistine gods. But it's a little different this time, right? God struck the Philistines severely for taking his ark. Like they couldn't wait to ship that thing back to Israel. But these idols, like nobody wants them. The Philistines left them. And First Chronicles tells us that David and his men just burned them. Nobody needs a powerless God. What happened here with David 
It's the exact opposite of what happened with Saul. And it's the exact opposite of what happened all the way back in 1 Samuel with Eli. David is a new kind of leader for Israel. But you'll see that the story is not over quite yet. Presumably the Philistines regroup. Uh, They kind of come back with reinforcements. They give each other a pep talk and they try again. Look at verse 22. The Philistines came up yet again and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. If you have a Bible open in front of you, and you should have a Bible open in front of you, right? Look at verse 22 and look at verse 18, right? Compare and contrast. Verse 22 is basically a word-for-word repeat of verse 18. When David inquired of the Lord, he said, you shall not go up, go around to their rear and come against them opposite the balsam trees. When you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself, for then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did as the Lord commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. Now think about that. This is the exact same scenario that we just saw earlier. As a matter of fact, the author goes out of his way to point out just how similar these two scenarios are by basically repeating verse 18 word for word in verse 22. The Philistines came up and they spread out in the valley of Rephaim. Now the first time, David asked the Lord, and the Lord gave him a very clear answer. You are to go up. So I don't think any of us would blame David for thinking, well, I've been here before. I've seen this before, and this situation is so similar. I just got to do what I always do. But he doesn't presume. He inquires again. He inquires afresh. And this time, despite the seeming similarity of those two situations, God's answer for David is entirely different. Because verse 19, God's instruction is, go up. Verse 23, God's instruction is, you shall not go up. Friends, I think there's a a clear application here for each and every one of us. And just to be clear, we don't have the Urim and we don't have the Thummim. We don't have these, like, God-given ways of inquiring of him like David did. And that's because we don't need uh, specific instructions for uh, decisions in our lives because we're not God's anointed king. And we have the general principles that we need to live by uh, written uh, down for us in this book. And we can seek him uh, through an even more direct means than the Urim and the Thummim by going to him uh, in prayer through our mediator, Jesus Christ. But I think the application here for us goes even further than that. Uh, We as believers, we ought to have such a dependence on God, like such a, a constant and continual seeking of his will. First Thessalonians, praying without ceasing. Like even if we've seen a particular scenario before, we're careful not just to go on cruise control and just assume that what we're doing is God's will just because we've done it before. You follow what I'm saying? We ought not to take for granted that on matters of judgment and wisdom, that the right course is simply to do what we've always done in the past. Thinking, I don't need to pray about this just because you've dealt with a similar situation before. Or thinking maybe that you've completely defeated such and such sin. I've done this before. I've resisted this temptation before. I don't need to worry about it. 
or perhaps thinking, well, sure, I sought counsel in the past, but at this point, I've been around the block a few times. I've been a Christian for a long time. I don't need to seek counsel anymore. By the way, one of the ironies of the Proverbs is that the wiser you get, the more counsel you're likely to seek. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. We usually think of a wise man as giving advice. The Proverbs present the wise man as listening to advice. And specifically in this passage, it's David thinking, well, I've sought God's will on how to deal with the Philistines before. I've seen this exact scenario before. Sure, I have the Urim and the Thummim and Abiathar, but why waste my time? I know exactly what to do. No, David, as a man after God's own heart, continues after God's own heart, even in very similar circumstances from before. I am not saying this, that you might be like paralyzed with indecision. Oftentimes, hear this, oftentimes our past experiences and past counsel that we've received and God revealing his will to us in those past circumstances, they're very helpful means for us to navigate our present circumstances, right? Seeking his will in the present situation. But what I am warning us against is presuming upon God thinking that we've somehow got him figured out. That just because you've done something before or seen something before, you just assume that you've got his will down cold. I love how Charles Spurgeon put it. Quote, Do not think that the stream of providence necessarily runs in a continuous current. Write that one down. Think about it later. Do not think that the stream of providence necessarily runs in a continuous current. And so God tells David not to go up this time. But instead, get behind the Philistines, kind of an ambush. Wait till God himself goes before you. And what exactly that looks like? Again, the author is very short on details. Uh, whether it's like an army of angels that kind of makes that marching sound, or maybe it's like in, back in 1 Samuel chapter 7, Uh, where God just kind of throws the Philistines into this panic and confusion. Uh, We don't really know. All we know is verse 25. David did as the Lord commanded him. And as a result, he's once again victorious. And this time, as far as we can tell, the Philistines don't come back. This is pretty much it for the Philistines. Israel's long-term enemies who've constantly been a thorn in their side Well, they finally seem to be subdued. But that's exactly what God said would would happen. Remember back in chapter 3, verse 18, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Mission accomplished. Point number two, the Philistines. David finally did what Saul could never do. Defeat the Philistines. Take a trip with me back before David became king, before David even gets anointed king by Samuel, all the way back to 1 Samuel chapter 8. That's when Israel first demands a king. And so the elders of Israel kind of gather together, and they, they come to Samuel, and they demand that he appoint them a king. They had rejected God as their king. They wanted a king that they could see, a king that they could follow, a king like all the other nations a king that could lead them in victories over their enemies. 
We want a king who will go out before us and fight our battles. And they got the king they wanted in Saul. Remember, he looks like a king. He's everything that the people wanted. But because he was disobedient, because he was ungodly, because he did not seek the Lord, ironically, he's killed in battle, failing to do the one thing that the people wanted him for, to go out and fight their battles. But David, David is the king who does what Saul could not. Finally defeat the Philistines. And he was the king who does what no Israelite before him could do in driving out the Jebusites from Jerusalem. And you say, why? What makes the difference? Well, the author drives that home for us. Look at verse 10. David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. And then verse 24. The Lord has gone out before you. It's because the Lord was with David. And the Lord went out before David. That's why he was so successful. And so you see, again, the irony. (coughs) The Israelites, they didn't trust God. And so they wanted a king to fight their battles. And so they got a king who didn't trust God. And he not only lost to the Philistines, but he dies in the battle. But now it's the king who fully trusts and depends on God to fight the battles for him, to go out before him, who actually leads them to victory. See, Israel got it all wrong in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Point number two, the Philistines. That's 2 Samuel chapter 5. I think it's a pretty straightforward chapter, at least in terms of its content. Uh, David and his men defeat the Jebusites. They take Jerusalem. And then David and his men defeat the Philistines, and they remove that threat, that enemy, for good. But for as long as we've been looking through the books of Samuel, we've been talking about how the the stories in these books, and really the stories in the entire Old Testament, they point to something greater to come. You search the scriptures, because in them you think that you have eternal life, but these are they that testify of me, Jesus says. And then later on the road to Emmaus, beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The Old Testament points us to Christ. And the events of this chapter are no different. David's taking of Jerusalem and David's final defeat of the Philistines, that's no different. They point us to the greater David who was to come. You think about it, for all intents and purposes... Jerusalem was a relatively minor city up to this point in biblical history. It's the events of this chapter that really get the ball rolling, right? Because David captures Jerusalem. Jerusalem then becomes the capital of Israel. In the next chapter, we're going to see the ark brought into Jerusalem. And then Solomon builds the temple. And for hundreds of years, Jerusalem becomes the center of worship of God for the people of Israel. It becomes the most important city in the entire Old Testament because it's where God's presence dwells among his people. But Jerusalem, David's Jerusalem, Solomon's Jerusalem, invulnerable, impenetrable Jerusalem, the kings of the earth did not believe 
nor any of the inhabitants of the world that foe or enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. Well, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians in 586 BC completely wipe the city out. The walls, the temple, the whole thing. As God's judgment for Judah's sin. And even when Ezra and Nehemiah and and those guys, they come back and they rebuild the city, it's just not the same. Uh, The people long for the glory days, the the days of David and Solomon. They they long for something better. And so David's taking of Jerusalem. Uh, While it was a glorious day indeed, uh, just like we saw with David uh, becoming king last week, it just leaves us longing for more. What about David's defeat of the Philistines? Look, as complete as it was, as thorough as it was, the long-standing enemies of the Israelites, the Philistines, they're finally gone. But it's hardly the end of Israel's enemies. As a matter of fact, the enemies just get bigger and bolder and badder in the Assyrians and in the Babylonians. And so all of this, 2 Samuel chapter 5, David's entry into Jerusalem, uh, David's defeat of Israel's enemies, uh, they just leave us longing for yet greater things. But a thousand years later, after David's triumphal entry into Jerusalem, well, there would be another triumphal entry into the same city. And this time it wasn't by like glorious and, and brilliant means like climbing through the water shaft. Humble, mounted on a donkey. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday, what did the crowd shout? Hosanna to the son of David. Now they were expecting the son of David to establish his kingdom in Jerusalem, just like David did. But within the week, those same crowds were shouting something else. Crucify crucify. And so it was right outside Jerusalem on that old rugged cross that Jesus was put to death. Of course, three days later, he rose again. And from Jerusalem, he then ascended to the right hand of God the Father. And through his death and through his resurrection and through his ascension, Jesus defeats the enemy of all enemies, right? Not not small potatoes like, like the Philistines, but the one behind all of the enemies of God's people, whether that be the Philistines or the Assyrians or the Babylonians, right? Satan and the powers of darkness. Jesus declares victory over sin and death. He disarms the rulers and the authorities. He crushes the head of the serpent that he might usher his people, not to David's Jerusalem, not to Solomon's Jerusalem, but to the new Jerusalem, a city of everlasting peace and rest for God's people. Friend, if you're here with us this morning and and you're not a Christian, I don't necessarily know your story. Uh, I I don't necessarily know everything that's going on in your life. I, I may not even have met you yet. But I know that you're longing for something greater. And that's why you're here. Because whether you know it or not, you are looking for that ultimate victory. You're looking for that city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. 
Well, I tell you today that if you repent of your sin and you trust in Christ, that he and he alone died for your sins and rose again for your justification, then you too can be saved. You too can come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in the festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to trust in the son of, son of David, uh, the greater David, who not only entered Jerusalem, uh, not only defeated God's enemies for good, but he did so on behalf of wretched sinners like us that we might spend an eternity with him. And so brothers and sisters, let me just leave you with this, uh, that, that we might eagerly desire our better country, the heavenly one, Revelation 21, listen as I read, verses 2 to 5. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. All things new. Friends, David's Jerusalem was destroyed. The Jerusalem of Jesus' day was destroyed. And someday everything around us will similarly be gone as well. But God, through his new Jerusalem, through the finished work of his son, Jesus Christ, is going to make all things new. That is our hope. That is our longing. That is what our soul looks to. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we, your people, eagerly await this new Jerusalem of which David's Jerusalem was just a type and a shadow. Father, we pray that you would speed the day that you make all things new. Father, between now and then, we pray that you would call all your elect to yourself that they might place their trust in Christ and so be saved, that they might look to the son of David, the greater David, and find salvation in his name alone. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.